this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to in focus this is g sampal your host for today's episode tensions have been rising at the ukraine russia border over the last couple of weeks there has been a massive troop build up on the russian side within 300 kilometers of the donbas region in ukraine This is a live conflict zone where the Ukrainian government has been battling Russia-backed separatists. While the West has accused Russia of trying to intimidate Ukraine, the Kremlin has accused the West of manufacturing anti-Russia hysteria, pointing out that troop mobilization within Russian borders is no one else's business. Another dimension of the rising tensions is that last week, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky announced that there had been a coup attempt plotted against his regime. by a group of russians and ukrainians russia however has denied any role in the alleged coup attempt so what exactly are the points of conflict between russia and ukraine what does putin hope to achieve through this troop build up and what has been the role of the west and nato in all of this to explore these questions and more we have with us stanley johnny the hindu international affairs editor stanley welcome to in focus thank you sambhak Stanley, uh, to start with, can you talk briefly about the reasons for Russia's troop build-up uh, near the Ukraine border? Is it just signaling, or is there a real danger danger of an actual invasion happening at some point? Sampath, I think we. I mean, it's very difficult to to see what President Putin's actual strategy is. Even NATO says the troops' mobilization is unexplained. so they themselves are trying to understand what the actual strategy is but you see i think there are two ways to look at it one is to look at the official russian response including putin's comments on the issue he he has surprisingly he has made series of comments on the tensions on ukraine border in the recent weeks yesterday if you look at what he said he said that the russians think or russians fear that nato could move permanent missiles into uh, ukraine that could target russian command positions or the russian heartland within 5 minutes which is a red line for the russians and to overcome this this you know threat perception russia was forced to uh, do hypersonic missile tests etc etc because this 5 minute time the you know the short span of time with which nato could possibly attack russia in the future with ukraine under its fold poses a major security threat to the russians so this is how maybe this is how the russians look at the crisis and secondly there is a historical point of view right since 2014 relationship between russia and ukraine have been sliding since the annexation of the of, of the crimean peninsula and then since 2014 the west has been supporting ukraine with military aid including lethal lethal military supplies as well as financial aid NATO uh, has been building up troops doing mobilization a large scale mobilization on its eastern flank with a clear eye on the Russians and uh, the Americans the British NATO everybody is turning black sea into a major contested zone now because NATO keeps carrying out military drills the Americans the United States is sending warships to black sea so the Russians also feel the heat from NATO and the United States on the one side so it is in this context that uh, you know the united states is trying or nato is trying to integrate ties with ukraine and ukrainian leadership is also very keen on this western integration russia doesn't want that that to happen 
because the Russians think that if Ukraine, you know, integrates itself with the West or Ukraine joins NATO, hypothetically speaking, in the future, that would pose a serious threat, security threat to the Russians. So Russia wants to stop this. So how do you stop this? So in 2014, the Russians took Crimea. So with Crimea under Russia's control, at least Russia could continue to keep its Svestapol military base on the Black Sea, which means Black Sea would continue to remain under the Russian dominance, despite other security moves by NATO and the United States. So with Crimea, Russia achieved that. But you see, at the same time, you know, Russia doesn't, Russia wants to retain some kind of control in Ukraine with a government that is completely hostile to Russia. It is not possible. So the Russian way of doing things is to retain the, that control through the pro-Russian proxies, the rebel groups that are operating in the Donbass region. So, but the Ukrainian government is not ready to honor its commitments as per the Minsk protocol, according to which the government was supposed to devolve more power uh, to the insurgents in the Donbass region. That hasn't happened. So Russia sees that the Minsk protocol is no longer operating to serve its interest. While on the other side, the Ukrainian government is deepening ties with the West. So what they have to do it. So this, I think, this is what driving, my, my assumption is that this is what, what, what is driving President Putin's calculation. So that he is building up troops on the border, sending a strong message to both the Ukrainian political leadership as well as the West that in the event of the NATO crossing the red line, so whatever that red line is, we might act. I think that's the message. Okay, so you spoke just now about uh, this proxy war happening between Russia-backed separatists and, and the Ukrainian regime there. Now, do is, is this conflict completely manufactured by Russian strategic interests here or do these separatists also enjoy some kind of mass support on the ground? Is there any ethnic dimension to this conflict here? Yeah, most of them are this territory, Donbass region, Russia-speaking people are there majority of them. It is the same case with Crimea. The ease with which Russia took Crimea, I think, itself was self-explanatory. There was no major resistance to, rather, I think, nobody disputes that. I mean, the, the dispute is that Russia had taken part of Ukraine, which is kind of, you know, most of countries saw as an affront on sovereignty, territorial sovereignty of Ukraine. But rather than that, people in Crimea, there was no local resistance against the Russian takeover. So they apparently, they favored joining the Russian Federation. So same like that in the eastern Ukrainian territories, there was a widespread resentment against Kyiv, which is, I think, very evident. And that is what is driving the insurgency. So the insurgents definitely has some mass support. And with that, the Russian or the Russian-Ukrainian geopolitical calculations also played a support. because. The insurgents held off against Kyiv only because of Russian military support. Without that, they wouldn't have done it, definitely. Kyiv would have, with, you know, lethal weapons from the West, military and financial aid coming in from NATO and the West, Kyiv would have run over the region, but they are not able to do it because there is Russian deterrence. So I think these two factors are there when we are talking about Donbass. So that's why, see, the Minsk Protocol was all about, it was, it was a victor's agreement. Because in 2014, Russia could have taken over this region, like what it did in Crimea. But Russia didn't do it because Russia wanted to try out other means. So it didn't go for a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Instead, what it did was that through France and Germany, nobody wanted an all-out war in Ukraine. So that they came out with Minsk negotiations 
and as part of which the Ukrainian government actually accepted the Minsk agreement, especially Minsk II, and then they committed themselves to constitutional reforms, devolving more power to the rebel-held regions, basically autonomy, and codify that autonomy into the new constitution, held fresh elections, local elections, and the Russians also committed themselves to withdraw troops from the border, offering the uh, Ukrainian-Russian border, you know, handing it over back to the Ukrainian troops. But nothing happened. Nothing happened. And the Russians now see that Minsk Protocol is dead. So they saw that as a vehicle to expand their interests, kind of, at least to retain their influence within Ukraine. But that's not what's happening. The Ukrainian rebels saw that as a means to solidify their control over the, Ukra over the territories. That also didn't happen. So I think the source of the current crisis is this, the inability to implement the Minsk Protocol. So Ukraine uh, has, uh, has sort of uh, signed the Minsk Protocol but has refused to implement any of the points of the agreement, is it? Yeah, that's right. And the Russians also haven't done it. The Russians were supposed to pull back troops from the border. They haven't done it. Ukraine was supposed to devolve more power to the region, hold elections, and then even introduce a constitutional reform. They haven't done any of that. And on the other side, Ukraine had actually deepened ties with the West, uh, you know, and the West has also stepped up its activities in Ukraine, which has further deepened the deepened the Russian, you know, insecurity, and that prompted Russia to act more aggressively. So this was like a cycle of a cyclical crisis. So whatever you do, either sides uh, w was actually deepening the crisis further. Some some people have been saying that Russia might be preparing for a repeat of the Georgia playbook of uh, 2008. I mean, what are the chances of that scenario uh, repeating itself? Because there also you had a state, a former member of the USSR, you know, asserting its autonomy, want us trying to protect its territorial integrity. And that led to a war. Could you talk a little bit about what happened then and are there any parallels that you can see or detect with the situation today? See, uh, Georgia also, the most important parallel was that Georgia at that time was talking about joining NATO. And for Russia, Georgia, Ukraine joining NATO was a red line because that means you are inviting NATO troops, NATO missiles, NATO weapons just, you know, to your borders. And you see, Russian foreign policy not only Russia's, whether it is Imperial Russia, the Soviet Union's, or Russian Federation. You see, one driving factor is that Russia's inherent insecurity. In the last two, three centuries, Russia had seen invasions from its western border, basically from Europe. So, uh, and that is basically the plains stretching from Eastern Europe towards the, you know, western flanks of Russia. That had been a factor of insecurity for the Russians for centuries. As Catherine the Great once famously said, the only way to protect my borders is to expand them. So this has been a Russian calculus. If you look at Russian foreign policy, Russia has always, Russia kept expanding. And Putin, it is a different era altogether. This is not Catherine the Great's time. This is not even the formation of the Soviet Union. But still you see, the Russians had taken Crimea. And with Belarus, they are talking about more integration. And Belarus, at one point of time, before the current crisis, Belarus was talking of normalizing ties with the West, etc., etc. But Belarus, after the last presidential election, was forced to turn its focus back to Moscow. And then, kind of, Russia has deepened its ties with Belarus as well. So, practically, Russia is also, you know, I think Russian foreign policy is also driven by the same calculus. So, Russia doesn't want NATO to further expand into eastwards, expand to the Russian western borders. So, that is, that is one thing. 
So with the, with the intervention in Georgia, Russia practically stopped the Georgian membership in the NATO. And also in 2014, with the intervention in Crimea, Russia made sure two things. One is that at least Ukraine joining NATO has been put on hold. And secondly, Russia made sure that its Black Sea naval base would remain under the Russian control, irrespective of who comes to power in Kyiv. So those two objectives were achieved in 2014. So now again, you are talking about Western integration and NATO troops build up, etc., etc. So Russia is, you know, you know, there are definitely similarities between Georgian intervention or 2014 with what is happening now. So the message is that if the Russians conclude that this is a red line has been crossed. Uh, or this uh, particular NATO move would pose major security threat to Russia. You can't entirely rule out an invasion here because I think you look at realistic assessment of the situation. Despite the Western military support for Ukraine, the United States had apparently given military assistance worth 1.6 billion dollars since 2014 to Ukraine, and there is a there is a bill in you know American Congress right now that seeks to enhance uh, the military aid to three 300 million dollars a year until. 2026. The UK has launched special training program for the Ukrainian troops, Operation Orbital. And NATO, you know, as, as we said, NATO had built up uh, massive troops on the borders of Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, and Romania. So uh, this is, uh, the West is also not sitting idle. The West had taken a three-pronged strategy to uh, the Russians since 2014. One is the NATO troops build up. Secondly, giving military assistance to Ukraine. The third, the imposing sanctions on Russia. But the problem is that none of this has worked to deter Russian moves. Why? Because Russia thinks that at least in Eastern Europe, Russia has an advantage. Or Russia thinks that even if Russia goes to war with Ukraine to meet its tactical goals, the West or NATO would not come to war with Russia. So I think that is what, is, uh, what Russian calculation is. So in that case, it is possible breakout of the conflict if the Russians think that its security interests are being compromised by NATO or the United States. Right. You you have given a very nice sort of outline and of of the entire Russian calculus here and how the especially the Catherine the Gates line of um, the best way to protect the Russian border is to expand it. That sort of neatly explains many of the kinds of moves they've been making since 2008 and 2014. So now what is the calculation or thinking on, on the US and the NATO side? I mean, uh, do they expect that the Russians will come and invade Europe, that they have to do so much in terms of uh, you know, amassing troops in Estonia, Lithuania and so on and giving money to Ukraine? But do they actually think that Russia is going to be expansionist and, you know, do something aggressive? Because one of the objectives of NATO is that it is a defensive alliance to, to protect Europe, Western Europe specifically, from invasion uh, from, from the East, so to speak. Now, is there any, do they really think Russia will engage in something like that? What is the lo their logic in terms of the kinds of moves they've been making, which is perceived by Russia as aggressive? Yeah, I think it is It is very difficult to understand the NATO moves from a strategic point of view. I try to do it, but I don't get a clear picture. Why? Because, you know, even when Russia after the disintegration of the Soviet Union, when Russia was struggling with itself, NATO kept expanding eastwards. And uh, and Russia was not in a position even to respond to that. And it was after 2000, after Putin became, you know, the Russian leader that and Russia made, you know, economic gains, started making economic gains and started coming out of its own strategic retreat that Russia started questioning these moves. And, uh, you know, back in 2000, Russia was even talking about joining NATO. So since then, but the problem is that NATO, NATO's eastward expansion was a major 
problem. And why did NATO did that? Why did NATO do that? I don't find a strategic explanation for that. And then secondly, I think this is basically, it could be a Cold War mentality because they continue, even in the United States, you see the United States is now trying very hard under the Biden administration to shift its focus towards China. Because in the recent years, the United States was, you know, it got stuck in many conflicts in the Middle East, in Afghanistan. And also it was kind of, it was in a, a competition with Russia. And at this time, the Chinese were steadily growing. And the Biden administration recent years had shown some, you know, had sent some signals that it would shift its focus towards uh, China. And Biden met uh, President Putin in Geneva earlier this year. They sought strategic stability, etc., etc. And even uh, in the G7 summit, even in the NATO summit, uh, you know, China was coming up as a reference in their statements, etc. But at the same time, I think the obsession of the establishment with Russia is still there, whether it is whether it is in Washington or in other Western European capitals, they are not able to get over that. That is a fact because they continue to see that uh, Russia under Putin, you know, who they call a thug uh, or whatever under Putin remains a major security threat. And to deal with the security threat, you have to do two things. One is to engage the Russians. You talk to them. You understand their security concerns and resolve your differences so that you can focus on your larger geopolitical challenge, which is definitely China. Secondly, you continue to wrestle with Russia. Uh, you know, I think that's what the West is currently doing. And there is a larger picture to this, to Russia's aggressiveness on the Ukrainian border. When I think we discussed it, one of the earlier podcasts that America's withdrawal from Afghanistan would definitely have a geopolitical impact, would definitely have an impact on the geopolitical calculations on America's rivals, including Russia and China. So uh, you see that once the United States pulled back from Afghanistan, it failed to win the war in Afghanistan, which whether foreign policy analysts agree or not, that happened with perception of weakness because the United States is the world's most preeminent power in terms of economy and military strength. But it failed to win the war in Afghanistan and it was forced to pull back from Afghanistan. And then Biden says the era of conflicts to shape the world is over. And definitely the United States wants to focus, refocus its resources on China, which means other countries that opens up an opportunity, including Russia. So Russia also thinks that when the United States is trying to transition, trying to refocus its foreign policy to Asia Pacific, the United States would not come for a conflict or United States doesn't have, you know, the strategic will to pick a fight with the Russians. And that opens some room for the Russians to make its maneuvering on the Ukrainian border. So these things, I think, could be connected. You know, these geopolitical developments could be connected. And the United States is now forced to respond to, you know, Russian moves on the Ukrainian border. Because yesterday, Antony Blinken said, who was in, who, who was in Eastern Europe, he said that there would be serious consequences if the Russians make any, any adventurous moves on Ukraine. So just look at this situation. What if Russia invades Ukraine tomorrow? What if Russia makes a military move on Ukraine tomorrow? What would NATO do? Would NATO go to war with Russia? What would the United States do? Would the United States go to war with Russia for Ukraine, opening a new theater? And if that happens, what would happen to the United States attempts to refocus its resources to Asia Pacific to take on China? So basically, the West is in a, in a kind of a dilemma. On the one side, it is obsessed with Russia. And on the other side, it is faced with a larger geopolitical reality in Asia Pacific.
Right. I mean, it does suggest that Putin seems to know exactly uh, what he needs to, what he wants, and is sort of going about it, the kind of quiet deviousness that we have come to associate with him. Coming back to uh, Ukraine, Russia has also expressed concerns about Ukraine acquiring and deploying Turkish drones against the separatists in Donbas. So, could you talk a little bit about what kind of military and other kinds of support the US and NATO has been giving to Ukraine? How serious is it? And is there a, a plausible red line? See, one clear red line is, of course, Ukraine joining NATO. But short of that, in terms of military aid being given and so on, is there a red line that would uh, that we could probably point to with regard to Russia's concerns? So, the aid is, I think, we don't have the specifics, but some details were that, that included anti-tank missiles, portable anti-tank missiles that could target, you know, Russian tanks in the event of an invasion. And largely provided, largely the the aid was focused on training. NATO, the UK and the United States are providing training and also, uh, as we discussed just now, large-scale financial aid as well you know, billions of dollars of financial aid to Ukraine and which which is likely to go up in the coming years. So these were the military aid we see the, the West is providing to uh, Ukraine. And in terms of red line, yeah, of course, NATO joining is one thing, which I think won't happen because for NATO also it would be if Ukraine joins NATO at this point of time, that means, you know, possibility of an open conflict is there right at the entrance. So NATO would not do it. And that's what the Russians want to do. This is a deterrence for the, for them to stop Ukraine joining NATO. So that is one of their goals. So, and secondly, I mean, you know, with the NATO buildup, troops build up on its eastern flank and the continued the drills in, uh, the continuing drills in, in the Black Sea, it is possible that it could kind of drift into a conflict, you know, because last time when the American warship was there, the Russians had sent Russian uh, warship to shadow it in the Black Sea. So that is one thing. But the problem is that when these things happen, it is uh, one unfortunate sen- scenario of this, uh, you know, if these incidents drift into drifting into a conflict, that is one thing. Secondly, I think the Russians would, as Putin said yesterday, the Russians would see uh, any NATO attempt to station ballistic missiles or uh, such offensive weapons in Ukraine as a threat. So incidents like that could uh, possibly trigger an open conflict. Right. Now, uh, we're running out of time. One final uh, question before we wind up. Uh, you spoke about earlier strategic will to enter into a conflict on the side of Ukraine when we speak of NATO and the US. Now, what is uh, strategic will is one thing. What is the level of preparedness and actual ability to sort of uh, engage in a conflict? When, say, let's say, if you look at the Black Sea, what is the current level of the NATO presence in the Black Sea? And in the event of a Russian invasion, how well uh, positioned is NATO to intervene, assuming they have the strategic will to intervene? See, I think from a strategic point of view, the best thing Ukraine has to do is not to let Russia invade them. Because if Russia invades them, I I don't think Ukraine, definitely Ukraine can't stop them, stop the Russians from getting what they want. And then secondly, I don't think that if an invasion happens, NATO or the United States would come for direct military assistance because uh, it would be, I mean, why should the United States go to war with Russia over Ukraine? What is I mean, the United States might support Ukraine to needle Russia. That is a different thing. Whether the United States would go to war with Russia over Ukraine is a completely different thing. So I don't think that would happen. So here, definitely the advantage is for the Russians, at least on paper. 
so conflicts you know it can turn into any direction once it actually breaks out but at least on paper i think the russians have a clear advantage and irrespective of how the ukrainians are prepared it it would be very difficult for ukraine to stop russians uh, from getting what they want and the russians would also they may not even if it happens they would target on uh, they would have set targets like what they did in georgia in 2008 you know they supported the operation only in abkhazia and south ossetia or in 2014 they took crimea without even a bullet being fired so the russians would make that kind of a very limited operations even if it, it if it happens its uh, its strategic goal would be to debilitate the government in kiev from making any further moves in their western integration and also providing more autonomy to the regions in the east so i think uh, ukraine's best interest is served when it stops russia or when it doesn't uh, let russia invade ukraine and the best way to do that is to revive the minsk protocol because ukraine once agreed to the minsk protocol and i think it is in the interest of the west as well because a conflict in the uh, in eastern europe as we just discussed would complicate the west's options all over again because this is the uh, period when the west itself sees when the west sees itself in in a transition in the geopolitical order so uh, stability in eastern europe is required for them as as much as stability in middle east or elsewhere so i think the best uh, way best solution for all parties including russians and ukrainians and the west is to revive the minsk protocol so that the russians would get what they want they wanted to retain they could retain some influence in ukraine through their proxies ukraine would also get at least they could maintain the status quo and the west could see eastern europe being stabilized at least for now so that they can focus on the larger challenges they face right Of course, you did mention earlier that the Minsk Protocol was was sort of widely seen as a agreement framed by the victors. So I don't know to what extent it would carry, uh, you know, a conviction on the Ukrainian side. But of course, in the larger interests of Eastern European stability, I, I suppose uh, this is the best step uh, forward uh, in terms of laying the foundation. Of course, as a geo from a geopolitical perspective, this is a very uh, fascinating scenario. It's almost like a chess game. the way russia and uh, the us and the west are sort of moving about it and we'll be watching over the weeks to come how this unfolds thank you so much stanley for sharing your insights and comments on this pleasure talking to you thanks sampath it's a pleasure in focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues in the meantime you can find our podcast on spotify apple podcasts Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by the Hindu. We'll see you soon.